Well, thank you, Pastor PJ, for um, that introduction, and as well as thank you to the church here. It's always a joy whenever you visit any church, and when you reach the door, it tells you a lot about that church. But it took me a while to actually get to there. I had to see it, because so many people were coming and saying, hi, how are you? <laughs> and initially I thought it's because maybe they know I'm the preacher, but then when they started asking, where are you from? Like, <laughs> I said, oh, this is great. This is great. This is a church that has a good testimony of loving strangers and loving visitors. And so I, I pray, I pray that your love excels still more. I do that. And um, well, many of you have heard I am from Zimbabwe, and some of you were saying if we hadn't been asked to switch off our phones, we'd be searching where Zimbabwe is on the map. But um, for those of you kids who are here, so make sure that at home you ask your parents, where is Zimbabwe? Okay. <laughs> well, I was born and raised in Zimbabwe. Um, I was born as the Bible talks us about that there are two kingdoms really in the world, right? There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of obedience and disobedience. I was born in that kingdom of disobedience, of darkness, where I grew up in a family that um, was religious on the outside, but inside I was dead. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and that was me, who walked formerly according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And uh, perhaps if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, where I was is where you are today. Within my culture is interwoven this aspect of ancestral worship, of believing in the dead, and that's how I grew up, where you consult the spirits for any decision, small or big. And the Bible calls that idolatry, right? Worshiping other gods. For me, that's what that idolatry looks like. And if you're here this morning, perhaps it looks differently of worshiping anything that takes the place of God, be it money, wealth, power, careers, all those things can become such an idol. I was known to be one who was angry, had outbursts of anger. But when we went to church, I was the most disciplined person that you could ever meet. The Bible calls that hypocrisy. I was a hypocrite before God. What I was on the outside was not who I was in the inside. But the Bible speaks to this and speaks of this as you are alienated from God, separated from God. Indeed, in sin did my mother conceive me. It was only in high school that I met a friend who was so faithful just to share the gospel with me. I don't know where that brother is, but I'm so thankful for faithful people would take the command seriously. I was able to see my sin. I was able to see how in God's word in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, it talks about we were created for Christ. You were created for Christ. 
Everything should revolve around Jesus Christ. But when we are born and we live for ourselves and we live for this world and we live for the flesh, we're not fulfilling the purpose in which we're created for. I saw how I was separated from God, understood that I lived in disobedience to a holy God, a God sometimes we like to think of as just God is love, but he is also a God of wrath who hates sin, and he will judge sin. I understood my need for him, that I could not save myself. Nothing I could do could have me be in relationship with him. I understood that it is by grace, it is a gift that God gives you. If you're not a Christian today, it is a gift. You can't work for it. You can't work for it. The penalty for sin is death. It's not just any death, it's a sinless death. And the only one who can die and take your place for that sinless death is God himself. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sin. And Jesus rose from the dead. Praise the Lord, he rose from the dead. And he's seated at the right hand of God. The gospel means the good news. The bad news is that God's wrath is upon you. That's the bad news. And that you can't do anything about it in and of yourself. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has come, taken your place on the cross. Amen. And in that, we're called to repent. This is how God was kind and gracious to bring me to the kingdom of light. And I pray if you don't know Christ today that you would hear this gospel and ask more about it afterwards too. And I know the church here will be happy to walk with you through that. By God's grace, he has called my family to be missionaries in Zimbabwe, ministering particularly among the villages in Zimbabwe. But I am constantly aware of the fact that I have not arrived. <laughs> I still have a long way to go as a Christian. God, the, the more you grow as a Christian, the more you should see how far you are in your growing. It's like as if, if you have the sun and you come closer to the sun, the more you come closer to the sun, the more you see the light, the more you come closer to God, the more you see the worth of Christ, his holiness, and just how wretched and sinful you are apart from him. This morning, Pastor PJ talked about how you're going through, thinking through missions and thinking through, is God calling you? This morning I'd like to focus and remind us of that aspect that before you think about going, you need to work on yourself. You need to be serious about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You need to have a right view of yourself. And who better to learn that from than the great missionary himself, Paul, the apostle, as he writes to the church in Philippi. So if you have your Bibles, please turn them to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we'll read God's word today, we'll read the text. And as Paul is writing, just on the front end, 
he's going to be writing to Christians, those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, those who were sons of disobedience by practice and are now sons of obedience by practice. So the message will focus primarily to you as Christian, but also keep in mind at the back of your minds if you're not a Christian that you're being called to live out this same gospel that Paul will be talking about. Philippians chapter 3 is our text. Philippians chapter 3. And we'll be focusing uh, from verse 14 today. Philippians chapter 3 verse 14. And we will be reaching verse 16 by God's grace. Philippians chapter 3. I'll be reading this morning from the Christian Standard Bible, as is the practice of this church. This is God's word. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of it by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, and this is talking to Christians, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. As to verse 16. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and your kindness. And I do pray, Lord, for your grace, even as we walk through this text. Help us to understand it, for hearts to be opened. I do pray, Jesus, that where we are unruly, you may rebuke us. Where we are faint-hearted, you may encourage us and that where we are weak, you may help us. Through your son's name I pray, amen. amen. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. You get this account of how the church started from Acts chapter 16, very familiar text to many of you. You would have, um, you read that whole account of Lydia, if you remember Lydia, the woman who worked with cloth, purple cloth, she hears the gospel, the Lord opens her heart. You remember the account of the Philippian jailer, and, and, and God opens their heart, and the church starts there in Philippi. Now, Paul, as he's writing to this church, he's writing about 10 years after that whole account in Acts chapter 16. And at this stage, Paul is in prison. He is under house arrest under the Romans for preaching the gospel. Now, as he is under this house arrest, Paul then writes to this church in Philippi. And as he writes to them, Paul has two goals in writing to them. The first that he has is to thank them for how they have cared for him, even while he has been 
in prison. He writes to them, thanking them that they have cared for him by sending him a gift, a financial gift that he mentions in Philippians chapter 4, as well as going over and above themselves in also sending a fellow messenger of the gospel, Epaphroditus, to come and minister to Paul's needs while he is under this imprisonment. Paul is thankful. He's so thankful for their, for their concern for him while he is under house arrest. The second reason that Paul is going to write is to encourage the church in the gospel to encourage the church in the gospel and thanking them for their partnership as well in the gospel. Now the gospel is going to be central in the book itself. Paul would even set the standard in Philippians chapter 1 verse 7 by writing and saying that he is he prays for the church in chapter 1 verse 7 he says because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7, he goes on and says again, Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Again, in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, in chapter 1, verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So Paul is going to be saturated. As you read this book, it is so saturated by this theme of the gospel, this mindset of the gospel. Again, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul then puts a shift to talk about, from talking about how the gospel has been outworking itself in his life through their partnership with him, to saying that the gospel should actually be relevant or be fleshed out in the church's life itself. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says to the church, just one thing, one thing, as citizens of heaven, Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In your walking, in your thinking, in your desires, the gospel should consume the Christian. The gospel is central. Central in Paul's life central to the church's life, and by extension, through the church, the gospel should be central as the world looks and sees the church. You see this in Philippians chapter 2, from verse 14 to verse 16, after he talks about how they should work out their salvation, he says to them in verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. That even your testimony, how you live, should point again to the gospel. We're reminded of Jesus' words of how we are the light of the world. We are to be as lights. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are the salt of the earth. 
the gospel is central to the heart of our dear brother Paul and should be central to the heart of every believer, let alone anyone considering the call to missions. So we get a glimpse of Paul's heart, a missionary's heart in the, in the outworking of his life as we come to our text today of chapter 3 from verse 14. And as we think through this, I know we're talking and thinking through missions. Is God calling us to this, to go? But even in Paul, the great missionary, the highlight here is it's, it starts with a perspective in your heart. There's a certain perspective that you're called to, an attitude that you're called to, that is God-centered, that is gospel-centered, that thinks through things rightly, an attitude that wants to grow and pursues growing in the knowledge of Christ. The main point in chapter 3 in our text today that Paul will give is found in chapter 3 verse 14 when he says I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus is this your goal to pursue Christ likeness I pursue as my goal the prize promised other virgins will talk about how I press on towards the goal. This morning, the question that will be set before us is, are you pressing on? Are you pursuing Christ-likeness? What does that look like? What does that look like? Now, in the context, when Paul talks about this pursuing, this pressing on, it is talking about that aspect of, of him understanding that God has saved him. God has saved him, but he's perfect positionally in Christ, but practically he still has a long way to go. He still strives on towards the goal. If you consider the context in Philippians chapter 2, earlier on in Philippians chapter 3 rather, in from verse 3 from chapter 7, to, sorry, Philippians chapter 3 from verse 7 to 8, Paul would have considered all things to be as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In Paul's mind, there is nothing that compares with knowing his Lord. Nothing in this world that could be offered to him in the flesh, or that his sin could offer, could compare to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. This was his goal. He would have highlighted the goal of this salvation in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, My goal is to know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. See, if you're a Christian this morning, the reason why you have been saved is that you may know Christ and that you may grow in knowing him. That's what gives God glory. And we, we get so confused oftentimes by all these other things, but really this is the reason why you have been saved. 
This is also what eternal life is. You know, oftentimes when you ask people, are you, are you a Christian? Yes. Then the other question that comes, are you, are you looking forward to eternal life? I struggle with that question because it has this mindset of something that is far off, something that one day we're going to, to have. But yeah, that's true, but it's not, that's not what encompasses eternal life. Jesus defines eternal life for us. In John chapter 17, verse 3, when, he's, when he, he describes it, not so much in terms of length of time, but in terms of relationship with Christ, that transcends time. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life. You want to know what the eternal life is? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So the one who is a Christian today is already experiencing eternal life in knowing him. And of course, we look forward to that quantity of time that is eternal. But one thing will always be constant. We will continuously know him forever. So we go back to our text in Philippians 3 verse 14, Paul speaks of this in that we, we, we pursue, we put, continuously put effort in this. We continuously pursue this knowing Jesus Christ and being like him. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, being enabled by divine grace, as we would have earlier said in Philippians 2.12. But this is the goal that we press on. A goal that God says will be achieved, it will not be achieved on this side of heaven, but a goal that God has built in every believer through him, giving us his spirit and giving us this desire to strive for holiness, knowing there's an inheritance for us in heaven. So this is why when we get back to the beginning of our text in verse 14, Paul starts by saying in Philippians 3 verse 12, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect. He has not achieved the goal while here on earth in this sinful flesh. Because the temptation would have been, Paul, we, we have heard how you counted all things as lost for the sake of Christ. We, we, know, we know of your testimony how you, 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 you left everything for the sake of Christ. Paul must be perfect by now. He has written all these books in the New Testament, in the letters of the New Testament. If there is one person who should be perfect, it should be this man. With how many churches he has planted, how many missionary trips he has gone to, if there is one person who should be perfect, it should be him. But he starts by saying, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect. What goal, Paul? What goal haven't you reached? The goal of knowing Christ and being perfectly like Christ. Paul knew for him, for him to grow and to 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 keep pressing on towards the price, he had constantly he constantly needed to have this awareness that he had not arrived. He had the right view of himself, his sinfulness. 
He hadn't already obtained it. He hadn't obta already obtained the price of being like Christ. He wasn't perfect. No matter how much God had blessed him with, no matter how much he knew, no matter how much of God's word he wrote, how many churches he planted, how many people he had led to Christ or discipled, how many sermons he had preached, how many people he had helped, he had not arrived. In fact, he repeat this in the first part of verse 13 when he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. This is so important for us to grasp and believe. You cannot grow if you think you have already arrived. It's like having a child. Like, I'm reminded of one of my daughters. I won't say which one. But it's like having a child that whenever you, you she, she's grown out of this, by the way, she's doing much better, <laughs> okay? That, that when you try to teach them something, or show them something, parents, right? Kids, you remember this when your parents tried to tell you something and then you say, I know, right? <laughs> I know, mom, I know. Before they even finish the sentence, I know, I know, mom, I know, daddy, right? It is so hard. It is so hard to teach someone something when they think they already know. <laughs> You cannot grow in being more like Christ if you think you already know it all, if you think you're already perfect, if you think everyone around you, everyone else around you is the one who has the problem. If you're not open to correction from God's people that he has placed around you, you're like that child. I know. There needs to be this healthy awareness of your true condition before God. That while he has saved you and made you perfect in Christ, practically you're still not perfect. Husbands, think about it. When your wife confronts you about something, what's your first response? Wives, think about it. When, you, when, you, when your husband confronts you about something lovingly, what, what's your first response? It's a very telling question to your spouse or other believers and you ask that question, do you, do you think I'm teachable? Do, do you think I'm open to correction? Do you see that in my life? And, and that will show you, that will show you, you may not say these words of, I don't think, I, I, I'm, I'm perfect. You may not use those words, but it's very telling how you respond in the face of correction. In missions, this has continuously been a stark reminder for me. It's, it's easy when you've read a lot, when you've had many theological discussions about things, and it's and, and, and so easy to start having that mindset of, I know it all. But even after over a decade of being on the mission field, I'm constantly reminded that I, I don't know it all. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not perfect. I am a work in progress, just like everyone else. And, and, and I think I'm in good company when I read Paul's words like this. I struggle with sin too. 
I am, I am constantly confronted by my weakness. I have, I have gone through times of extreme discouragement and depression, and, and that shows me so much of my weaknesses as well before the Lord. I have wrestled with, with the Messiah complex sometimes of, of thinking that everything depends on me or, or the sermons that I preach or, or other things that I say, but such pride, such pride. And the Lord rebukes me and disciplines me continuously. I'm not perfect. No one apart from the Lord is. I have not arrived. We have all not yet arrived. So, I'm not perfect, Paul says. I have not arrived. But, but this is what I do and why. This is what I do and why. Look at the second part of verse 12. But I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. The word effort there in the Greek is the word diako, which has the idea of pursuing or, or even to persecute, right? This, this is interesting because Paul would have used the same form of the verb in chapter 3, verse 6, when he talked about his former manner of life when he was a persecutor of the church. And we know how much zeal Paul had in troubling the church and, and going to the extent of approving of Stephen's death, going to Damascus to persecute Christians. He became so popular that in Acts chapter 9, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, but you, you read about a man called Ananias, who, who, when he's called by the Lord to go meet this, now at that point his name was Saul, he says in verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has the authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. That was his reputation and the intensity to which he was known for persecuting. But then he uses that same form in saying that, but I make every effort to lay hold of it. The same zeal and effort that I used to pursue in persecuting he uses the same word, I make every effort to grow in being more like Christ. He did everything he could to persecute the church, and now he did anything he could to pursue Christ-likeness. But why would he do that? Paul, why would you do that? Why would you have such a focus? Look at verse 12. But I make every effort to lay hold of it because I have, I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. What is he saying? I do this wanting to take hold of what I was taken hold of by Jesus or why I was taken hold of by Jesus. In other words, I want to pursue the reason why Jesus saved me. And why did Jesus save me? Why did Jesus take a hold of me? Remember Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 in the context? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death. Sometimes we stop making every effort 
we stop pursuing, we stop pressing on in being more like Christ because we forget the reason why we have been saved in the first place. You haven't been saved to live for your own comfort and your own satisfaction as the world tells you and you start believing. You haven't been saved to make as much money as possible in this world for yourself. You haven't been saved to make a name of yourself in whatever career you have. Not that I'm saying these things are not God's blessings, right? But that is not the reason why you have been saved. And we mix those things up and then the things that the world teaches us became, become now the central focus. And we stop making every effort towards that. And instead of making every effort towards Christ-likeness, we switch that and make every effort towards A, B, C. We get distracted. You have been saved to live for Christ, his goals, his kingdom. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's your North Star. This, should what, this is what should drive a Christian to grow in knowing Christ because this is why he has saved you. And, 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 and when this becomes clear in your mind, you, you go back not just to, to, to knowing Christ, but your Savior's goals, your Savior's desires. What is, what is on the heart of my Savior? What is the passion of my Savior? What is the will of my Savior? The will of my Savior is that I may be holy. The will of my Savior is that all the world hears about Jesus Christ. And that makes sense. And so I will make every effort towards that. What is Christ's will? That I continuously put to death the deeds of the flesh every day. That I strive to grow in holiness by being in his word and praying by loving and caring for the saints. His will is that I may live as a light in the world so that the whole world may be filled with worshiping the Son and seeing the worth of the Son. When you know that, when you keep that at the forefront of your mind, you pray for gospel work. You're involved in gospel work in your context, in your family. I was so thankful for the prayer of confession this morning. We have not discipled our kids and showed them Christ as we should. That's a gospel mindset. So you ask, Paul, why, why else would you have such a focus? Why else would you have such a focus? We, 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 we've seen that he has this focus so that he may lay hold of what he has been laid hold or taken hold of by Christ to fulfill the purpose of which he was saved. By what? But why else would you have such a focus, Paul? Look at verse 14. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. That's why else. The language here is overtones of being in a race. But the finishing line and the prize is not here on earth, but is upward in heaven. Notice here that heaven is not the prize in this context, but the place where you receive the prize. 
He would not receive the prize until he was in heaven. Well, what is the prize? Well, consistent with the context, the prize would be perfection, Christ-likeness, and everything that comes with it. Of course, the greatest joy that comes with it is being with our Lord, is it not? Being with our Lord. Paul constantly has the joy of finally being with the Lord one day. Remember that familiar text earlier on in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live in the flesh, verse 22, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one to choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, for that is far, far better. He desired that. He desired to be with his Lord. But while he was here on earth, he would live in light of Christ's goals and desires and being in heaven with him. This is why even as Paul writes the letter, Change Day by Night to a Roman soldier under house arrest, he writes in this letter several times that he rejoices. You know, some people have said this is the, 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 the book of, uh, of joy, right? Joy. But the joy really is rooted in the gospel <laughs> and the outworking of the gospel. So he keeps pursuing the prize under even hard circumstances, knowing that there is a crown of righteousness that is waiting for him in heaven. He knew Jesus' words in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 10 to 12, that are so true that rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, they will persecute you. Paul, because he knew and had this upward look of there is a finishing line ahead, so I will keep pressing on. No matter how much hardship there is, no matter how much struggle there is, no matter how much suffering there is, he always looked upward. Romans 8 verse 18 he says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. You can't be so afraid of suffering that it overshadows the hope of heaven. This is really where a lot of us Christians need to grow. The moment the slightest thing comes our way to disturb our comfort, our Christianity, our walk, we tremble and we fear and we take a step back. But when we have the hope of heaven ahead of us, we should be willing to suffer. We should be willing to have the things that we hold dear threatened. Earlier on in Philippians chapter, um, chapter 1, he says this in Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. He says, for it has been granted to you. Granted, there is a word for grace, grace gift, right? That, that's used there. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, it's a grace gift for you to believe in him. But it is also a grace gift to you for you to what? 
suffer for him. But that becomes a reality when you have a far more eternal view of life, not this, what this temporal earth can do to you or promise you. I consider the sufferings of this present time that they're not worthy with comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. When I, put, when I put them on a scale, is what he's saying, suffering for Christ and the glory to be revealed, they don't balance. It's not even worth considering. We lose such a focus of growing and knowing Christ and even being willing to suffer for Christ because oftentimes, the threat of what we can lose on earth becomes so great in our minds that it diminishes the greatness of heaven. The threat of what we can lose on earth is greater in our minds than the greatness of what we will gain in heaven. We lose the focus of the crown of righteousness that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. We start thinking about losing friends. All my friends are here, right? So I won't go, right? I don't want to lose my friends, so I won't really share. I just want things to just be, just be, just be at this safe place. The threat of losing family opportunity in life, but I'm doing so well. I'm doing so well. And everyone at work thinks I'm the next rising star. Well, let's not shake things by talking about this. The threat of your relationship with your neighbors, financial security, for the sake of the gospel, those things become greater in our minds than the greatness of the prize that is at the finishing line. And so we are not willing to suffer. We're not willing to rock the boat. We're not willing to say like Paul, I have counted all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Earth and what it offers and what we can lose in it become greater in our minds than what heaven offers. And so we live for the here and now, and we do not grow as we should in knowing Christ. We do not obey God's will, and so we compromise. And all you think about is how you should please everyone, how you should not offend with the gospel, how you should store up your treasures on earth, how church should be an option. How your home is yours, not growing in hospitality. How this is my time. How I watch what I watch, I read what I want, I watch what I want, I read what I want. I just have to fit in with the world. When that happens, when that happens, when that happens in the church, the church struggles in loving one another. The church doesn't become lights in the world. The church is not a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. The church stops sending missionaries. When that happens, the church stops sending and supporting and praying for missions. Why? 
because they've lost sight of the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. If you go back at verse 13, the last part in verse 13, Paul gives another insight of how we can effectively press on towards the goal or the prize. By now you should, you should, you should, you should have caught on that there's no outline here, okay? We're just walking through the text, okay? For you who are still waiting for number one. If we go back to verse 13, the last part, Paul gives another insight. How, how, can, how can I effectively press on towards the goal, the prize? How can I do that? And this insight shows, that, shows us how we have to have this singular focus in life. Listen, look at verse 13 again. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken laid hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. He says, the one thing I do, this speaks of something very important, the singular goal and focus. Earlier on in chapter 1, verse 7, he would have used similar language in chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, just one thing, right? Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is of singular importance that I do this one thing, Paul says. What is that one thing? that I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. The strong implication here is that you cannot press on or make every effort and move forward in knowing Christ and being like Christ and fulfilling Christ's will and desires if you keep looking behind. Again, this is sports language, as if you're in a race. Imagine you're in a race and you're running track, and as you run, you keep running and you keep looking behind. What's going to happen? You're going to slow down. You're going to get distracted. Maybe you're going to even trip and fall. But what does this practically look like? This may be the Christian who doesn't move forward because they keep looking behind at all their sin, the weight and the guilt of that sin. This may be you when you think about, man, when I was an unbeliever, I lived like this. Or it may even be you and saying, man, but yes, even as a Christian, I have sinned so much against the Lord. Am I worthy? to even be used or say something true and right about Christ to even go? Am I worthy? The weight and guilt of that sin, you keep looking at it, you keep thinking about it, having it define many things in your life. Listen, this is the mind of one that is not laying hold of the truths of God's word, especially in Romans 8 verse 1 that says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Jesus died for your sins, past, present, and future. And his death was more than sufficient for your sins to be forgiven. If you have dealt rightly with them, 
if you have confessed them to the Lord, if you have asked forgiveness from those you have sinned against, if you have repented, don't keep looking behind. You will not press on. That's like saying, Jesus, your death was not sufficient. I need to add more guilt to the cross for, my, for me to really feel forgiven or to be forgiven. You cannot move forward. Looking behind may also be that Christian, may also be that Christian that keeps thinking about all the achievements that God has made and done in and through them in the past. And they keep dwelling on them. Right? That's all they think about, that's all they talk about. And that becomes such a distraction that they don't make every effort to press on ahead. I shared the gospel with this person last year. I remember five years ago, I brought someone to Christ. Man, God is amazing. You know, I used to give out all these Bibles and these tracts. I used to go there and share the gospel at the university campus. I used to do this. I used to, I used to do, I used to do this. And that in the past of looking behind, they are so stuck that they're irrelevant for the gospel today. What God is interested in today is how have you known my son better today? And not being stuck on how did you know him yesterday? See, this is a major temptation in missions on a personal level, on a church level. On a corporate level, a church can keep talking about what they have done in the past, how much they've supported and helped, and they get so relaxed for the kingdom work that is set before them for today. On a personal level, a believer can be stuck there where they keep falling in that same trap of all that they have done. Even a missionary, a pastor can fall in that same trap, dwelling on all the ways that God has used them yesterday and they don't put effort in the today. What God is interested in today is how have you known my son better today and advanced the kingdom of God better today? Every day, no matter the circumstances, we ought to reach forward to what lies ahead. The word forward there that Paul uses in the text is again an athletic term that has the idea in the Greek of stretching a muscle to its limit I make every effort, I reach forward. It gives this picture of a runner who is getting to the finishing line and stretches so much to the finishing line. If you've seen athletics and they get to the finishing line, you know how they always go like this? This, this is the idea here. That you have an eternal perspective continuously as if every day you're running, you're at the finishing line. Do you live for God's glory, stretching every spiritual muscle as if you are about to get to the finishing line? As I prepare and think through this of, is God calling me to go? Or just even in my personal life as growing in a Christian, as a Christian, do I love my wife and, and, and Christ, as Christ loved the church as if I'm stretching every muscle? Do I love my children? as if I am stretching every muscle. Kids, 
right? Do I, do I obey my parents as if I am stretching every muscle, as if I'm getting to that finish line, put every effort? Do I, do I do that for the sake of the gospel? Do I work as unto the Lord at my job as if stretching every muscle? Do I share the gospel as if stretching every muscle? Do I love the church of God and all the believers as if I'm stretching every muscle? If I can't do that in my context here, <laughs> how, how am I going to do that on the mission field? Right? At the end of his life, when Paul was facing death, only then could Paul write these words in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. There's reserved for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Finally, and I know people love to hear that word, finally. <laughs> what will happen, what will happen if I'm not pressing on in this race, what will happen? If I'm not pursuing Christ-likeness, what will happen? If I'm not making every effort, what will happen? If I'm not striving to, to grow in relying in His grace and the Holy Spirit, what will happen? If I'm, not, if I'm not focused on a kingdom mindset and the gospel, as Paul has been showing in this book, how it permeates with the gospel, what will happen? Look at verse 15 and 16. Therefore... Let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. We're to have this attitude. You are to have this attitude, Christian, as many as are mature. The mature here is not contradicting what you'd have said in verse 12 when you talked about that he is not perfect. There he is speaking in terms of his practical, practical walk as he's grown. He is speaking in terms of his position in Christ, having a righteousness of Christ, as many as are mature who are in Christ. We ought to have this attitude. What is the attitude? The one that remembers you have not arrived, right? The one that remembers the reason why you were saved. The attitude that forgets what lies behind. The attitude that stretches forward to what lies ahead. The one that remembers your inheritance and your reward is in heaven. The one that presses on daily to become more like Christ. That's the attitude. But if you don't have this attitude, this is what will happen. God will reveal it to you. Well, how does he do that? Well, it may be through his word, like today, right? Well, you come to church every Sunday, and you hear the word of God preached. It may be through his people. Brother, you, 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 you think you have arrived, but you haven't arrived. You're not teachable. You have such an earthly focus, and this is what you're pursuing, and that's idolatry. The conviction of the Holy Spirit... I just made a decision that's just so focused on me and money. It may be even through trials. 
discipline. Remember, don't, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. God may bring things in your life that he takes away things that you hold most dear to show you that those things have replaced Christ in your life. Or he may give you things you don't want to show you that his grace is sufficient for you. You can bank on this. God will reveal it to you. If you call yourself Christian, this is God's word. He will reveal it to you. I often talk of the story of when my son loved, we, we loved my family. It's probably getting tired of hearing this, but God taught me so much at that time of, we, we have trees, a lot of trees where we live, right? And, um, and we have one particular tree, and our kids love to climb those trees, right? Um, if you're a parent, you've had that moment when you just hear a, a sharp scream from outside the house, ah, mom, dad, right? And then you go outside, and for us, it was like, he's just hanging on, right, on <laughs> the tree, right? He's looking down, he's like, I don't know how to get down, okay? And I'm looking up like, okay, right. Yeah, but for me, it's not the distance is the distance is not that great. It's not that great, you know, from where where he, the bottom of the feet are to the ground. But for them, it's like this is the biggest. This is like you know, like miles, right? So, like, okay, that's that's fine. Um, hey, just just let go, and I will catch you. You know that look the kids give you where they where they look at what they're holding on to. And then they look down at you, <laughs> and they're like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to let go. No, no, just let go. Trust me. Let go, and I will hold you. No, I'm not. I'm, no. Ah! <laughs> I cannot help you until you let go, and I will catch you. It took a while. But only when they let go. Were they able to experience that freedom? That for them to trust. And we're like that. We laugh, but we're like that as Christians. And God reveals it to us so much that there's so many things we, we, we grab a hold of on. For my, for my child, it was that brunch, right? For you, I don't know what that is. But you hold on to it so much, so much that this is, this is dear life. And, and God calling you, let that go and experience the joy of being in your father's arms, in obedience to him. So you, you look at that thing, and you look at God's call, and many of us are just going like, no. Not until we do that. God will reveal that to you if you have a different attitude. And Paul ends by saying this in verse 16, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have obtained. 
and the phrase there in any case has here to say, oh, one more thing, right? One more thing. Keep living to whatever truth you have attained or by the same standard you have attained. This is another athletic connotation here, which points to if you're running as in a race, you're an athlete, keep in your lane. Keep walking on the same path you have been from the beginning. Remember when you were saved? Remember the gospel? Remember the truths of the gospel? Don't deviate. Keep walking on the same path that you have been from the beginning. This is a path in the context of, I have been saved to know Christ, and I want to become like Christ. I will strive for the progress of the gospel. This is why I have been saved. So in a world so consumed by sin, in a world so consumed by the world itself, are you consumed by Christ and the gospel? Are his goals your goals? His will, your will. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your grace and your kindness. We do thank you for your word. Father, please forgive us, forgive me, that oftentimes we do not make every effort to press on towards the goal of Christ-likeness making your name known throughout all the world. But Lord, we, we see that this starts with us personally in our hearts, in our homes, in the church. Help us, Father, may it never be, may it never be that we start being so prideful and think that we have arrived. May you help us that we may not have the joys of this world overshadow how precious the crown of righteousness is in heaven, that we would not be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. Help us, Father, to cherish nothing else but the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So I pray for this, these, your people, that they may grow in loving Jesus every day, every day. And, and where you have been showing them grace and growing, help them, Lord, to excel. Help them to excel. I ask and pray this through your son's name. Amen. Amen.